The R-16 rocket stood silent on the launch pad at Baikonur. It towered nearly a hundred feet in the air, brimming with highly explosive rocket fuel. It was supposed to have been airborne and gone hours before. Its designers and their military leader lauded for the magnificent display of power and ingenuity. But this rocket wasn't going anywhere for the time being. There had been issues with its fueling, exacerbated by a rushed production and testing phase, in order to meet the designated launch deadline. Now it sat dead on the launch pad, as hundreds of technicians and engineers scuttled about the spire, performing their work as quickly as they could, so as to dodge the wrath of their superior. That man was Marshal Mistrofan Nedelin, clad in his crisp uniform. Medals glistened on his chest where he sat near the base of the rocket, scintillating like a cluster of tiny suns. His eyes were shadowed beneath the bill of his hat as they flit back and forth over the workers. The delay irritated him. This rocket was supposed to be the next generation of ballistic missile technology, powered by fuels that did not have to be stored at cryogenic temperatures to be functional. It would allow for nuclear-armed missiles to stand ready around the clock, prepared to launch at the shortest notice, if the Americans and their NATO allies fired off a nuclear volley, or if orders for a first strike were to come down the line. What was more, it was very nearly the anniversary of the glorious revolution that had heralded the rise of communism in Russia. Nadellin wanted his new rocket to be fired off for the first time before that fateful date as a commemoration for the proud Soviet state. If only these bloody technicians would work faster. There came no warning when disaster struck. There was a burst of flame midway up the rocket, and then, in the space of a blink, the launch pad was consumed by a bellowing fireball. Fuel and toxic chemicals spewed from the rocket, Human beings positioned on the gantries surrounding the vehicle ignited like pyres. The pavement nearby began to melt as the temperature soared into the range of 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit in some places. It turned the asphalt to muck that gripped at shoes and feet, pulling those who would escape down to the ground, arresting them in place so the fires could feed. In a bunker nearby, the missile's chief designer, Mikhail Yangel, stood with a cigarette clasped between his fingers, helpless, while outside some of the brightest rocketeers in Russia burned to death. Baikonur was engulfed in smoke and flame. Welcome to Episode 8 of Frontier of Infinity, Frustrations. When we last left off, the Mercury 7, America's first astronauts, had begun their training, but the vehicle they were to ride into orbit was in flux. 
The Atlas missile had been replaced with the Redstone given an unreliable track record. But the Redstone needed to be modified to carry a human before it could be launched. To do this, Werner von Braun was officially transferred to NASA and made head of the newly minted Marshall Space Flight Center, which had previously been the Redstone Arsenal. Across the world, in the Soviet Union, Sergei Kurlyev had won approval for his own manned program and had begun work toward building a manned spacecraft. But while this work was underway, he also launched a pair of highly successful lunar probes, one of which impacted the moon in a historic first, while the other photographed the far side for the first time. By the dawn of 1960, a cosmonaut training center had been temporarily established in Moscow, where the 20 Soviet cosmonauts could begin preparation for their own space voyages. In this episode, the Soviet space program continues to work toward a manned flight, but suffers a terrible tragedy, while the Americans are likewise met with difficulties in advancing their own agenda. When Werner von Braun's Saturn engine first roared to life in the spring of 1960, it caused quite a stir. Its godly thunder echoed far and wide, startling livestock and triggering at least one stampede. Windows shook and walls shivered. It was a glorious display of technological might, and, as it would turn out, a harbinger of things to come. But the locals who lived in the vicinity of the Huntsville testing range were less than appreciative following the test. Their cows stopped producing milk, and their hens stopped producing eggs. Pets were frightened into catatonia. So bad was the damage that some of them demanded compensation. But for Werner von Braun, it was a beautiful sound. The Saturn program had received official approval the previous October. And come January 1960, President Eisenhower, with prodding from then-Senate Majority Leader Lyndon Baines Johnson, increased its budget from $140 million for fiscal year 1961 to $230 million. In addition to the extra cash, it was appointed a top national priority rating. The first phase of Project Mercury and the success of Soviet probes Luna 2 and Luna 3 made it clear that a rocket with a much greater lifting capacity would be needed later on as the manned space program developed, and if they wanted to beat the Soviets in the propulsion department. While the Americans continued work on their rockets, the Soviets were preparing their cosmonauts. In May, the first unmanned test of the Vostok space vehicle was conducted, and while the rocket performed beautifully, placing the capsule in orbit without issue, after it made 64 revolutions, the retro rockets fired to deorbit it, but a fault in the attitude control system saw it bounce off of the atmosphere and re-establish itself in a higher orbit with no fuel to return home. Had there been a cosmonaut inside, he would have certainly died. So it was back to work to iron out the defects. In June, the so-called Star Squad finally got to meet the man they had heard referred to as the Iron King. The chief designer, 
the man who led the team that designed and built the Soviet Union's rockets. He was an almost mythical figure to them. They had never heard his name nor seen his face, but they were nevertheless preparing to ride one of his creations into space. Cosmonaut Alexei Leonov recalled, quote, A black Zil-110 drives up, and this guy in a navy blue overcoat and hat with a big, powerful neck steps out. Under his brimmed hat, you could see penetrating black eyes. His eyes got livelier when he saw us. He was then 54, and he was looking at his future. About 20 of us, tough, well-conditioned military fighter pilots experienced in MiGs 15, 17, 19, end quote. I can't say whether or not Kurliev lived up to the mental pictures that the cosmonauts had inevitably built up in their heads, but he delivered an impassioned presentation to them about the future of spaceflight as he envisioned it. He referred to the cosmonauts as his little eagles, and when he was finished with his talk, he took them on a field trip to inspect the Vostok capsule that would serve as their spacecraft. They entered into a large white space that was kept as sterile as possible. Technicians in white coats attended two rows of Vostoks arranged to either side of the room, all in various states of construction. There, the cosmonauts were introduced to Oleg Ivanovsky, the chief constructor, and were led to the Vostok that was nearest to completion, a metallic orb covered over in highly reflective foil. The machine shocked the cosmonauts. It was not at all what they had expected. There were no wings, for starters. How was it supposed to keep itself aloft without any wings? Inside, it was filled with bizarre machinery, the interior surfaces covered over in zigzagging bundles of wires. But Kurliev assured them that this machine was indeed the craft that they were preparing to fly, as mind-bending a thought as that may be. It didn't have wings because it was a guided craft. On the way up, it would be pushed by a rocket. And on the way down, well, gravity would do all of the work for them. When Kurliev asked for a volunteer to crawl inside the vessel, Yuri Gagarin was the first to step forward. Kurliev liked Yuri. He was enthusiastic, always cheerful, and he had scored good marks in training. He hailed from the Smolensk region, about a hundred miles outside of Moscow, where he had been born on a collective farm that both of his parents worked. When he was only eight years old, the Nazis had invaded, and the area around his home had seen its share of battle. Young Yuri personally witnessed a wounded Red Army soldier use a grenade to blow up himself as well as two Germans as he lay dying on the battlefield. Yuri's family and neighbors were brutalized by the Wehrmacht as they swept through the countryside. His family was flushed out of their home and forced to live in an earthen hovel they dug out for themselves. But they still fared better than many. An egregious number of Russian civilians were killed during the war, including some who lived near Yuri. But Yuri and his brother Boris did not sit idly by while the Germans ravaged their homeland. They both took part in some light sabotage, 
spreading broken glass or other sharp objects across roads to pierce the tires on Nazi military vehicles. Boris was nearly killed when he was caught by a German soldier. But he narrowly escaped death when the soldier was called away before he could kill the boy. Fortunately, Yuri and his family survived the occupation. And after the Germans had been chased out, Yuri attended vocational school to study smelting. Displeased with this, he applied and was accepted to a flight school in Orenburg. He graduated in 1957 and was then assigned to what must have been a less-than-desirable post at an airbase in Murmansk, north of the Arctic Circle. It was here that he was contacted by Kurlyov's recruiters about the cryptic special flights. Before he entered Kurlyov's Vostok capsule, Yuri removed his shoes as if in reverence. This immediately endeared him to the chief designer. After this visit, the cosmonauts returned to their new training facility located 20 miles outside Moscow, a compound that became known as Star City. The following month, the Vostok vehicle was ready for another test, and this time it would not fly alone. Two dogs, named Chaika and Lysishka, were loaded into the capsule and loaded atop the launch vehicle to test the capsule's ability to keep an organism alive in space. Kurlyov had developed a relationship with Lysishka, and he even visited her before the launch. Reportedly, he scooped her up, and stroking her fur, said that he very much hoped that she would return home alive. Boris Chertok, one of Kurlyov's fellow engineers, admitted that even despite his mixed feelings for Kurlyov, his display of affection for the dog choked him up a little. The following day, with the pair of canines strapped to the top of the rocket, it prepared for launch. The rocket lifted off of the launch pad. But about 30 seconds into the flight, one of the booster engines ignited, and the entire rocket exploded. Lysishka and her comrade Chaika perished in a glorious eruption. In typical Soviet fashion, there was not a word delivered to the press, and the failure was kept entirely silent. But it did lead to the addition of an ejection feature for the capsule in case of a similar occurrence on a manned flight. In August, another test was conducted, again with two dogs on board. But luckily for all of the animal lovers in the audience, this test was successful. The dogs were named Strelka and Belka, and they arrived safely back to Earth, marking another first for the Soviet Union. It was the first time that a living being had been returned safely from space. This led Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev to sign off formally on a manned spaceflight in September. Kurlyov hoped he could get it done by that December. The Soviet manned space program appeared to be on its way to fruition. But before that could happen, the Soviet rocket community would suffer a terrible tragedy. While Kurlyov was busy working on his space rockets, other teams of engineers were working on rockets for other uses, namely military ones. One such group was led by an engineer named Mikhail Yangel, who was tasked with the creation of a new intercontinental ballistic missile that would make numerous improvements on the ones that already made up the Soviet arsenal. 
One of the main problems with missiles like the R-7 was that their fuels required special storage conditions. Namely, the liquid oxygen, which was used as an oxidizer, needed to be kept at very low temperatures for storage and use. This required a lot of extra energy and equipment, and just generally made the fuel harder to work with. It also meant that it was difficult to fuel a rocket before launch, which was particularly troublesome in the case of an ICBM, which would ideally be ready to launch at all times in case of a nuclear strike. The solution that Yang Gel and his team came up with was dubbed the R-16. This rocket made use of new fuels that were easier to work with, and did not have to be stored at such low temperatures. The fuel component was unsymmetrical dimethyl hydrazine, and the oxidizer red-fuming nitric acid. But these fuels came along with challenges of their own. They are highly corrosive, and can be described as hypergolic fuels, meaning they self-ignite when they come into contact with one another. The fuel and the oxidizer could not be allowed to mix with one another outside of the combustion chamber, and only when the engines were supposed to fire. Otherwise, an unwanted ignition would occur which would likely result in an explosion. This project was commanded overall by Marshal Mistrofan Nadellin, who was, at the time, the head of the Soviet Ballistic Missile Forces. At his behest, the rocket had been rushed through its testing phase, as Nadellin was eager to conduct the first test launch in late October to honor the anniversary of the Bolshevik Revolution. Under the original plan, the rocket shouldn't have flown until July of 1961, but Nadellin was adamant, and the test was scheduled for the 23rd of October at Baikonur. However, fueling issues, including a detected leak, delayed the launch as repairs occurred throughout the night. In violation of protocol and the advice of his engineers, Nadellin refused to allow the rocket to be drained of fuel before the work on it began. Instead, he sent his technicians in to perform their work on what essentially amounted to a giant bomb, one that vented toxic fumes to boot. To make sure that everything was done his way, Nadellin, dressed in his uniform with his many medals pinned to his chest, had a stool positioned just 60 feet away from the rocket so he could personally supervise the repair work. As the work continued, an electrical fault kicked off a calamitous chain reaction that resulted in the second stage firing on the launch pad, with over 200 people in close proximity. When the second stage touched off, it ignited the primary stage, and the entire rocket exploded. Boris Chertok described the scene as such, quote, Propellant components splashing out of the tanks soaked the testers standing nearby. Fire instantly devoured them. Poisonous vapors killed them. He continues, Frantic people trapped on the service platforms jumped straight into the fire and were instantly consumed. The enormous temperature at a significant distance from the epicenter of the fire burned people's clothing, and many of those fleeing who got bogged down in molten asphalt burned up completely. Nadellin himself was among the casualties. 
He had been very nearly vaporized in total by the conflagration. He could only be positively identified by the charred golden star remaining where he sat, all that was left of his Hero of the Soviet Union medal. In the end, the official report claimed that 92 people had died, though that estimate is possibly low. Some of the people who were there and survived claimed that the body count was more on the order of 150. Either way, it was an unprecedented catastrophe in the history of rockets, and in their usual way, the Soviet authorities covered it up. There was an investigation, but no one was held accountable. After all, the man who was most responsible for the calamity had been claimed by it. The official story that was fed to the public was that Nadellin had died in a plane crash. The wider world wouldn't even learn that this had happened until into the 1980s. Miraculously, the rocket's designer survived. Yangel had stepped away for a smoke break when the rocket went up. He met with Kurlyov shortly thereafter, and he asked to be punished. Though the real punishment he received was far worse than anything the chief designer could inflict. He was haunted by the explosion from that day forward, eventually confessing that he could never get the images of that day out of his head. This explosion constituted the worst rocket disaster in history right up through the present day. Never before or since has a rocket failure claimed so many lives at once, and it would have a profound impact on Kurlyov's own launch plans. He had initially hoped to launch a manned mission in November, but with the Nadellin disaster, as it came to be known, so fresh, that launch date had to be pushed back somewhere into the following year. Instead of a manned mission, another crew of dogs were launched in a Vostok on the 1st of December, but a mistake on re-entry made it apparent that the capsule would not land in Soviet-controlled territory. So the capsule was detonated remotely, and the canine crew sacrificed to protect the secret that was Vostok. Another dogged mission was launched on December 22nd, and this time a failure in the upper stage booster resulted in the capsule being jettisoned and floating down to Earth in Siberia. The dogs were recovered, but the flights also revealed a host of new issues with the Vostok capsule. The manned launch would need to be pushed back even further. Though, in the meantime, decisions needed to be made regarding who would fly the first manned space mission. The question was posed to the Star Squad, and 17 out of the 20 suggested that Yuri Gagarin should be the man for the job. Ultimately, the decision came down to Gagarin and his peer German Titov. Kurlyov already knew who his pick was. He had liked Gagarin from the first, and he wanted him to have the honor of being the first human in space. But the decision resided with General Nikolai Kamenin, who commanded the Cosmonaut Training Center. He did not take the decision lightly. He knew full well that there was an appreciable chance that the man he selected would be marching off to his death. He noted that Gagarin's primary strengths, in his view, were self-confidence, a calm demeanor, and knowledgeability. 
Titov, on the other hand, had a quote-unquote stronger character than Gagarin, and apparently was more precise in his training exercises. Premier Khrushchev eventually came to support Gagarin. The optics would be fantastic if the first man in space was a farm boy from the Russian heartland. With Kurlyov and Khrushchev on his side, it was finally decided that Gagarin would be the first in space. While all of this was playing out in the Soviet Union, advances were being made in the United States as well, though all did not go smoothly. Werner von Braun, now an official member of NASA, had trouble with some of his colleagues. The animosity ran deep. Among the NASA ranks were a number of people who resented von Braun and his team for their former Nazi allegiance, as well as for von Braun's celebrity. He was one of the best-known members of NASA by the general public, and that rubbed some the wrong way. Among them, Robert Gilruth, head of the Space Task Group, and Christopher Columbus Kraft, who served as the task group's flight director. Personal considerations aside, Von Braun also found himself at odds with the other NASA engineers on certain topics. He and Kraft had even gotten into an explosive argument at a party over whether control of the manned capsule should lie predominantly with the pilot or with the ground control team. Kraft was an advocate for ground control, while Von Braun thought that the pilot should have more authority. It took the intervention of Von Braun's wife Maria to break up the scuffle and lead her husband away to cool off. There was a separate conflict with Max Fajet, who headed up the Flight Systems Division within the Space Task Group. Von Braun wanted more integration testing to be conducted on the Mercury Redstone before attempting a manned launch, but Fajet insisted that there simply wasn't the time. On top of all of this, the movie about Von Braun's life, for which he had sold the rights a few years prior, was finally released in September. It was titled, I Aim at the Stars, but rather than the fawning celebration that Von Braun was expecting, it turned out to be a bit more critical than he desired. Premieres of the film even drew protests in some regions. The movie didn't come out in Britain until December. But the London premiere drew crowds of protesters, and two men even displayed a banner they had made that read, quote, Nazi Brown's V-2 rockets killed and maimed 9,000 Londoners, end quote. This public backlash led to the rise of a joke that went, I aim at the stars, and sometimes I hit London. Fawn Brown's past was starting to catch up with the new public image he had spun for himself. The Americans were experiencing their own launch setbacks just like the Soviets had, though for less deadly reasons. Testing problems on the Mercury Redstone resulted in the planned October launch being rescheduled for early 1961. Then, on November 21st, another frustrating if almost comedic setback, occurred with another test. Mercury Redstone 1 was placed on the launch pad at Cape Canaveral, but rather than rumble up into the heavens, it rose a few inches off the pad before falling back and teetering for a moment. The onboard systems thought that the flight was over, 
and the escape tower fired its engines, streaming away, while the parachutes at the top of the crew capsule deployed and flopped limply over the side of the rocket. This was a potentially serious problem. If the wind picked up and caught those chutes, then they could conceivably pull the fully-fueled rocket over and detonate it. Panic ensued in the control bunker. Von Braun's Germans lapsed back into their native language instead of English, angering flight director Chris Kraft as he was instantly left out of the conversation. He shouted at them to, quote, Speak to me, damn it! The escape tower crashed down nearby, and a quick examination of the situation revealed that the umbilicals used to control the rocket had separated, leaving the ground team powerless to issue commands. A giant, unsteady bomb was teetering on the launch pad. One of Von Braun's men, a veteran of Penamunda named Albert Zeeler, suggested finding a sharpshooter who could punch a few holes into the liquid oxygen tank to drain out the oxidizer. This plan was not enacted, however, and instead the controllers decided to do nothing. There was no wind, and there wasn't any forecast either. It was a fortuitous gift from Mother Nature, and it was decided that the rocket would be left to sit until the batteries were depleted at which point a valve on the liquid oxygen tank would open and the liquid would evaporate away. By the following morning, the rocket could be fully disarmed, and the cause of the malfunction was determined. An engineer had filed down one prong on an electrical plug to make it fit into a particular socket. Because one side was shorter than its counterpart, when it disconnected as planned, there was a difference in the disconnect times between the two prongs, which triggered the cutoff signal. It was another in a long line of failed tests, but the work continued to see the rocket launch successfully. And like the Soviets would do, the Americans needed to decide who their first man in space would be. The public favorite was John Glenn. He was an all-American type, a family man and a regular churchgoer. The newspapers had taken to painting him as the father figure of the group, what was more, the other astronauts seemed to exercise loose morals at times. They would frequent the bars near Cape Canaveral and liked to race cars on the beach for fun. There were also reports of infidelity with some of the women of the Cape, but Glenn seemed to be immune to all of this. He preferred to spend his time off with his family. However, when the question of who should be the first to fly into space was posed to the astronauts if they couldn't select themselves, not one of them chose John Glenn. In the end, it was Robert Gilruth's decision, and Alan Shepard was selected, with Gus Grissom named as first alternate and John Glenn as second alternate. This was an exceptionally bitter pill for the other astronauts, to be overlooked for the inaugural flight was bad enough, but to be left out of the chosen three was even worse. Of course, it was always inevitable. NASA couldn't pack all seven of them into the Mercury capsule, so six of their number were always going to be left behind on the first flight, and four were always going to be excluded from even having a chance at that honor. Deke Slayton would later hypothesize that politics had made the decision every bit as much as qualifications. 
Was it really just coincidence that every branch of the military that had a flight program was represented in the top three? Shepard was Navy, Grissom was Air Force, and Glenn was Marine Corps. And was it really any wonder that the Navy man had been selected to be first? After all, the nation's new president, John F. Kennedy, was a naval war hero himself, having served on a patrol boat in World War II. Politics may well have played a role, but behind the scenes, there were many other considerations taken into account before the final decision came down. The NASA engineers had assessed Shepard to be the best initial choice because they believed him to be the best of the group at making quick decisions in high-stress situations. Additionally, he was judged to be the most articulate of the Mercury 7, and thus would be the most qualified to deliver remarks on the flight back to the scientists and engineers on the ground. Grissom was known as a laser-quick problem-solver, who could devise solutions for engineering problems under a great deal of pressure. Hence, he was the first alternate. And Glenn was selected in large part because of his service record from Korea. He had shot down three enemy aircraft in just nine days. But more importantly, he had a reputation for being able to keep a plane in the air that had suffered so much damage, other pilots would have bailed out. If something went wrong on a space flight, that's the sort of person you would want at the controls. In the moment, John Glenn shook Shepard's hand and kicked off the round of congratulatory gestures, though the disappointment the others felt was well illustrated in that not one of them suggested a round of drinks in honor of Shepard's selection. Shepard, however, was overjoyed. He raced home to tell his wife Louise the good news, but he swore her to secrecy about it. The announcement was made to the public that one of the three chosen astronauts would make that first fateful flight, and it drove a wedge among the Mercury 7. Glenn, Shepard, and Grissom were the true astronauts. The others were just auxiliaries along for the ride. But Gilrath was adamant that all the astronauts had to play along with NASA's PR strategy. The public was told that the final decision had not been made and that the pilot for the first flight would be selected from among the chosen three as they continued their training. The cited reason for this was that it was to protect Alan Shepard from having to face the unmitigated attention of the press. For a while, there was discontent among the ranks about the decision. Gilruth received some complaints over having chosen hard-drinking, fast-driving Alan Shepard over the godly family man Glenn, but Gilruth stood firm in his decision. Upon seeing that there would be no swaying Gilruth to change his mind, the Mercury 7 closed ranks around Shepard. He would be the first, whether they liked it or not. They'd still each get their chance to fly into space, but in order to do so, they had to make sure they worked together to see each other's missions fly successfully. So, it had been decided. The Soviets had selected their first man in Yuri Gagarin. The Americans had theirs in Alan Shepard. Both sides were racing forward to be the first to get their temperamental rockets ready for a manned flight. Which side would carry the day? That's where we're going to leave off for now. 
both sides of the space race are experiencing difficulties with their rockets and have weathered many setbacks, but the spiral of progress is often slow. In the next episode, it will all come together for these two parallel space programs. The first human in space will slip the bounds of the Earth. But until we return, I'm Tom, this is Frontier of Infinity. I'll see you among the stars.